This is the 11th week in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and I've really enjoyed just taking our time studying the Gospel of Mark, going through chapter by chapter every week. And so this week we're going to be in chapter 11. Chapter 11, it marks a transition point in the ministry of Jesus. It marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And so now, from now until Easter, everything that we read is going to take place in a one-week span in Jesus' life. And so, and so this is this interesting text. We usually read this text the Sunday before Easter on Palm Sunday, but since we're going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be doing that today. We're going to be looking at this triumphal entry. And I've always felt like the triumphal entry was, wasn't quite the best title for what happened in Jerusalem that day, but I guess I, my mind usually goes to this story I heard. It's a silly story. I heard in church uh, one time at some point or another, but it, it makes me chuckle. So uh, little Johnny uh, never missed church. Him and his family always went to church. And, and one day he had a sore throat. So, so John and his mom decided they were going to stay home and she'd keep an eye on him. And his dad and his older sister went off to church. And they're just staying home, watching cartoons, just relaxing a little bit. And a little while later, dad and sister get home and they're carrying palm fronds. John says, what in the world are those things? And they said, well, when Jesus came in, the, the people would, would lay these down on the ground and Jesus would walk over those in his coats and they would just say, you know, like, glory to God in the highest, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus, or, and little John looks at his mom and he says, couldn't that figure? The one time I missed church and he shows up. <laughs> Silly joke, right? Thank you for the courtesy laugh. I do appreciate that from all of you. Uh, but, you know, the, the triumphal entry has always been one of those things that I felt like, man, may, they probably could have had a, a different name than the triumphal entry. It really just seems a little underwhelming to me. I don't know, maybe whoever, you know, puts out Bible translations, if you're looking for another title for that, maybe the underwhelming entry would be something you'd consider for the next translation. But anyway, Mark chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. I want to talk to you about why I think this is, this is kind of a, something less than a triumphal entry. So Mark chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. Here's what we read. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, go into the village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there. No one's ever ridden it. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it. The two disciples left, and they found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door, and as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing? What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut in the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming, of our king, on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! 
So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon and then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. That seems a little less than triumphant, doesn't it? First of all, Jesus rides into town, and and you would think that if somebody was making a triumphant entry, they would ride on a white horse, a well-trained white horse that was big and muscular, but Jesus rides on the colt of a donkey. And he isn't welcomed by the aristocracy. If somebody was making a triumphal entry, you think that they would would get the most influential people in town, the politicians, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the wealthy elite of the community to meet Jesus on the road. But Jesus is met by average people who were following him already. And you would think that if Jesus were making a triumphal entry, he might, I don't know, stay. But how does the text end? Jesus came to Jerusalem and went to the temple. After looking at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. So he doesn't walk in to Jerusalem impressively. He doesn't arrive in Jerusalem with big fanfare from the ruling elite. And he doesn't even stay in town. This is the strangest triumphal entry I have ever seen. In fact, though, uh, this event introduces introduces the theme for the rest of Jesus' ministry. It's, It's understated. In every way. In fact, it mirrors, it mirrors the way Jesus came into the world. He wasn't welcomed by the obvious crowd. He was welcomed by shepherds. He wasn't born in a mansion or a palace or a castle. He was born in a manger. And Jesus' beginning of the end of his ministry mirrors the beginning of his ministry. It's so understated in every way. I mean, why, why is Jesus' ministry so understated? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, Jesus isn't, isn't constrained by a human need to feel important. He doesn't need for people to think of him as important. So, so the trappings of wealth and importance, they have no hold on him. And second, Jesus' triumphal entry is supposed to be anticlimactic because Jesus isn't going to be staying long. He's not going to be staying long. Well, why isn't he staying long? We know that he doesn't stay in town very long that first day, but he's got about a week left of ministry. And if we've been paying attention to what Jesus has said, if the disciples have been paying attention, we'd know this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He'd be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Here's another one. Leaving the region, they traveled through Galilee, and Jesus didn't want anybody to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. Here's one more. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. And taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. 
Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. And they will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They'll mock him, spit on him, and flog him with a whip, and they'll kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus has three times in the recent chapters of Mark predicted his death. And what we find now as Jesus makes this triumphal entry is that this isn't something that's going to be happening at some point in the future. Right? This, isn't, this isn't something that Jesus is going to have a couple of years down the road. It's not something that's still in the planning phases. Right? He hasn't said, hey, you know, we should get together sometime. For Jesus, this is something that's going to happen later this week. What plans do you have for later this week? You got any plans for later this week? Anybody got any plans later this week? Anybody? What are you doing later this week? Just go ahead and just give me a... You're going to grandma's later this week. What are you doing later this week? Brandon's <laughs> on call. He's got lots of plans. <laughs> what are you doing later this week? Anybody got any plans for later this week? You're going to watch some basketball games later this week. Okay, you're going to do that. I got an eye doctor appointment later this week, and some of you may notice I really need it. Okay? We've got plans for later this week. Maybe you're going to go have dinner with your family, doctor's appointment, date night. Maybe you're going to a concert, taxes. It's that time of year. Those things are going to happen. Those things are going to happen for you later this week. It's written on your calendar. You're making plans for it. As Jesus walked into Jerusalem on top of palm branches and coats, he knows that later this week he will be killed in the same way that you're going to grandma's house, in the same way that you're on call, in the same way that you're going to watch basketball games. It is a certainty in his mind that later this week he will be killed. Make no mistake about it. Jesus' triumphal entry, it isn't about power or wealth. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is about one thing, the incredible love he feels for people. And Jesus loves people. So as we read the rest of chapter 11, we're going to see that. We're going to see Jesus' love for people manifest in some unusual ways. So he does, he does a couple of things that are smaller scale examples of what he's going to do later in the week as he dies. And I think these small scale examples are going to help us understand his death, burial, and resurrection just a little better. So let's keep reading. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And by the way, if you need a good Bible verse that explains your life, this is a pretty good one. Jesus was hungry. I can relate to that verse. So the next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs on it, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So let's stop here for just a second. Uh, because a little later in the chapter, we read down further, the disciples go by that same fig tree again, and they say, hey, Jesus, look, that's, the, that's that fig tree that you cursed yesterday, and now it's withered, and it's dead. And so this is a miracle in Jesus' ministry, but it's not a very obvious miracle. Because if we think about the miracles that Jesus performed 
as he did ministry, all of them were about helping somebody else. Right? Jesus took, uh, took people out of the control of demonic possession. He removed those things from people's lives. He fed thousands of people with just a little bit of food. He calmed a storm so his disciples could be safe. He did all sorts of incredible, miraculous things. He healed people who were sick. He gave them back sight and vision and the ability to walk. He raised people from the dead. All of his miracles were about helping somebody else. And if we look at this cursing of the fig tree, it just seems a bit off. All of the miracles that Jesus performed, all of the manifestations of his heavenly power were about helping somebody. And it seems here like he's just being a little bit petty with a tree that had the misfortune of not having any fruit on it yet. So what's going on here? Let's start with a little bit of context. Figs are ready to eat sometime in June. And, and, and while at this time of the year, there probably weren't any figs on the tree, there should have been, uh, there should have been some, some tiny buds that will eventually turn into figs. Uh, the tree should have that because the text tells us that it was in full leaf. And at the time that a tree comes into full leaf, these little buds that will eventually grow into figs should start to appear. Now, the buds, they're not delicious. They're not delicious, but they are edible, and they have important nutrients that a person could eat and, and use for survival if they were in a pinch, right? Bear Grylls would look for, would look for these buds on fig trees. So, so Jesus doesn't find any of these things. And the point that he's making is this tree looks really impressive, but it's no use at all. And so Jesus has a problem with that. He has a problem with things that look really impressive but aren't any use at all. Maybe a good parallel scripture to this would be from Matthew 23 when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Outwardly, you look like whitewashed tombs. You look really impressive. You look really beautiful. You look like you got it all together. But on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. See, Jesus has a problem with things that look really impressive but aren't any use at all. And so to this fig tree that should have some evidence of fruit, he says, may no one ever eat your fruit again. So let's keep reading. Uh, and by the way, as we keep going, I want you to see something that, that as Mark tells us the story of the fig tree in passing, he tells it just really briefly. He tells the same story again with different characters. So I want you to notice that, that story that we just read. Same story, different characters. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And that evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. This is the same story as the cursing of the fig tree. We just have different characters. So Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you are like a fig tree and leaf that has no fruit on it. You look impressive. You look beautiful. But the only thing you're doing is deceiving people. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a house of profit for a few. 
And so what he doesn't say, but what his actions imply are these words, may no one ever eat your fruit again. May no one ever eat your fruit again. By the way, that happened. About 40 years later in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. And you know when it was rebuilt? Anybody know when that temple was rebuilt? It hasn't been. See, Jesus said, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And so what do we learn from these two stories? We learn this. Jesus came to conquer everything that deceives people. He came to conquer everything that deceives people from a fig tree that should have fruit on it to a temple that should be leading people closer to God. And later in the week, he's going he's gonna to cleanse, cleanse the world of the sin that so easily deceives people. And you know, sin's a lot like a fig tree with no fruit. I want you to take a look at this fig tree. Go ahead and put that in Sin's a lot like a fig tree with no fruit. If you were to go into Jerusalem and you'd see this tree in full leaf, you'd say to yourself, I bet there are some figs on that tree, or I bet there's at least some of those buds, because when the tree is in leaf like that, it is an indication that this thing is going to produce good fruit. If there's no fruit on a tree like that, you are deceived. Sin's a lot like a fig tree with no fruit. It looks good. It looks really good. It looks like a healthy tree. You might expect it to be full of fruit, but here's the deal. It only looks good when you're far away. Sin only looks good when you're far away. When you get closer, you see that there's no fruit on the tree. When we get close, we feel the emptiness and the isolation that it causes. When we get closer, we experience the decay that it causes in our lives. When we get closer, we see the pain that it causes us and the ones we love. Sin only looks good when we're far away. Sin only looks good when we're far away. I want to show you. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 15. Here's what he says. He says, there was a man, he had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So there's this young man, and he allows himself to be, be deceived by sin. He allows himself to be so deceived, in fact, that he says, Dad, I want my share of my inheritance that I'd get when you died. I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now. That sounds kind of tacky, right? That's a little uncouth, right? It's probably not something that, that a well-respecting person would say to their parents, just give me my inheritance now. It sounds tacky to us. In the first century world, that is unimaginable. That is an insult of the highest order because what the son is saying to his father is, you are as good as dead to me. I don't care about the life that you have now because I want the life that I want. You're dead to me. Give me my money so I can get out of here. So the son is slapping his father across the face. Well, the father honors the request. I'm sure it caused him a great deal of pain and sorrow, but he honors the boy's request. And a few days later, the boy sets out for a distant land, and there the text tells us that he spends all of his money on wild living. And we're not going to elaborate on that any further, but you get the point. So I don't know what the young man saw first. 
Maybe he had a friend who was wealthy. And maybe this young man became consumed by this wealth and, and he didn't have eyes for anything except for the ability to be as wealthy as his other friend and he was consumed with jealousy and greed. Or maybe, maybe because the text says he spent all of his money on wild living, uh, which, uh, let's just say there are ladies involved in that. And uh, so maybe he had eyes for somebody who wasn't his wife. And, and he became infatuated and consumed with her, and he goes to this distant land, and he spends all of his money on this wild living. I don't know what happened to him. The point is, he saw this fig tree, and he thought there was something there for him. He thought there was something there for him. He thought that until he got a taste of what sin really does to us. About that time, his money ran out, and a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. So here's what his sin did to him. His sin left him poor, hungry, and alone. Now, I don't know. Maybe your sin's done that to you. Maybe you're here today and your sin's robbed you of your family, your friends, your stability in life. And I need you to know, nobody blames you. Nobody thinks less of you. I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to leave because you were deceived. And I'm awful sorry that happened to you. In some ways, all of us in here have been deceived. We all looked at a fig tree that we thought had fruit on it, and it turns out it didn't. That's why we're here. That's why, that's why all of us are in here, because at some point we looked at a fig tree that we thought had fruit and we realized it didn't and we were burned by it. And we know better than anybody else in the world our own specific need for Jesus. See, having a perfect past isn't a requirement for attending church here, because none of us have that. So the only thing that all of us have in common the only thing all of us have in common is that moment we realized our need for Jesus because sin doesn't deliver what it promises. Here's how it looks for the young man in the story. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer to be worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you at least take me on as one of your hired servants? I can't be your son anymore. I know that. I've, I've burned that bridge, but can I at least be a hired servant in your house, Dad? Here's what we can learn from that. We learn three things from this man's epiphany. First of all, we got to learn to own the fact that our actions were sin. We need to learn to own the fact that we need help we don't deserve. We need to learn to stop walking further from God. Those are tough things to admit. It's easy in the short term to justify ourselves by saying, well, this, this really isn't wrong. It's just that the Bible and that these, these Christians are, are too narrow-minded to see that this way of living is okay, but it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that one day we will have to answer to the God of creation for our actions. And you can convince yourself now that any particular sin you choose is okay. 
And that's fine if that works for you now. But I just want to let you know that one day we have to answer to the God of creation. And I want all of us to be prepared for that day. My guess is, if you're living in sin, you know it. You're just ignoring it. And I can make an educated guess on that subject because I'm pretty well versed in living in sin. And I know what it looks like to ignore it and tell myself that it's okay. I want to encourage you to stop pretending. I want to encourage you to stop pretending that you don't know the truth and admit to God that you've sinned. But when we do that, our tendency is to say, God, I know I'm not worthy to be called your child, but can I just, can I just work as a servant in your house? Can I, just, can I just do enough to earn the right to live in the servant's quarters of your house? And we say that, God, I know, I know I'm not good enough. I'll just try to do more good than bad. God, I, I'm, I'm going to try to be nicer to people. I'm going to come to church most of the time. I'm going to stop cussing as much. I'm going I'm to stop doing all of these things, God. Can I just be a servant in your house I know I can't be a part of the family, but can I be a slave? And you know how God responds? Let me show you. So the young man returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father came running to him, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. And his son said to his father, I've sinned against both you and heaven, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father ignores this and he calls to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. God says it's not about being good enough to be a part of the family God says, you are mine and I love you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. It's not about being good enough. God loves you. 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 Let me be a little bit more specific. You know the way that you feel about your children? God loves you more than that. You know the way that you feel about your parents? God loves you more than that. Maybe you weren't raised by your parents, your grandparents, or the person who raised you. You know, the love you feel for them, God loves you more than that. God loves you. Preacher I know and respect named John Weiss put together a list of people that God loves, and I'd like, God loves, and I'd like, to, I'd like to share it with you this morning. So God loves ambulance drivers, accordion players, airplane pilots, artists, astronauts, acrobats, the Amish, Anglicans, astrologers, adulterers, atheists, and addicts. God loves babies, Baptists, Bible readers, and boy bands, blondes and brunettes. God loves the bullied and the bully. He loves brave people, bossy people, bitter people, and burned out people. God loves Canadians, Cambodians, Cubans, and Mark Cuban. He loves congressmen and congresswomen, crooks, creeps, cheaters, crystal meth users, and cat lovers. God loves dads, deadheads, deadbeats, drag racers, and drag queens, disc golfers, disc jockeys, Duke Ellington, and the Dukes of Hazard. He loves Elvis impersonators, environmental activists, evolutionists, and Eminem. God loves the faithful and the faithless, fearful and the fearless. He loves people from Finland and France and people who think Philippines starts with an F. 
He loves good people, grateful people, grouchy, goofy, glamorous, and guarded people. He loves people who collect garden gnomes. God loves homosexuals and homophobics and all the homo sapiens in between. God loves people from India, Indiana, Indiana, intense people, introverts, and God loves IRS auditors. God loves Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, judgy people, jaded people, and just plain weird people. God loves Chloe, Courtney, Kendall, Kylie, Kim, and Kanye. I don't really know what that means. God loves people living in Laos and people who feel lousy about themselves. He loves lawyers, librarians, landscapers, and moms who pack lunchboxes. God loves ministers, missionaries, Mennonites, Methodists, the meticulous, malicious, mischievous, and mysterious. He loves people who collect marbles and people who have lost their marbles. He loves Madonna, Miley Cyrus, and Marilyn Manson, and no comment about which those are. God loves Nick Jonas, Nick Cannon, Nick Saban, Nick Nolte, Nicolas Cage, and the people you call neighbor. God loves obstetricians, orthodontists, ophthalmologists, optometrists, and people who write obituaries. God loves preachers, pimps, pornographers, pedophiles, pill poppers, and the police who arrest them. God loves the Queen of England, members of the band Queen, and Queen Latifah. God loves Russians, Rwandans, real estate agents, and really annoying people. He loves people from South Africa, South Dakota, and the south side of Chicago. He loves strippers, smokers, and even serial killers. He loves Tom Hanks, Tom Brady, Tom Jones, Tommy Lee Jones, and telemarketers. God loves people from the United Kingdom, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States of America. He loves umpires, ushers, and used car salesmen. He loves vegans in Virginia and vegetarians in Vietnam. God loves people who appreciate vanilla ice cream. God loves Will Ferrell, Will I Am, Will Smith, William Shatner. He loves waitresses at Waffle House and the women at Weight Watchers who weigh you in after. He loves x-ray technicians, xylophone players, and people named Xavier. That's as far as you can get with X. God loves you. Tall you, short you, old you, young you, employed you, unemployed you, popular you, unpopular you, happy you, sad you, content you, confused you, guilty you. God loves you so much that he would send his son again to die for you. God loves zookeepers, zoologists, people from Zaire, and the people of Zimbabwe. God loves you. And because he loves you, he's made a way for you to be forgiven. He sent Jesus to be punished for your sin so that you can be treated as sinless. You know, Jesus said a lot of things when he was on the cross. But in those many hours when it came to the sin that so easily deceives us, he let his actions speak. And here's what his actions said. May no one ever eat your fruit again. That's what Jesus came to do. People thought he was triumphantly coming into Jerusalem to overthrow the government. He had his sights set higher. He'd come to overthrow the rule and reign of sin in this world and free everyone who is ensnared by his deceitful power. Now, because of that work, all we have to do is ask for forgiveness, and it will be given. And that's where we ask. That's where we ask, right there. 
In 1 Peter, Peter writes, baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's where we make our appeal to God for a clear conscience through Christ Jesus. It's where we say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. Please forgive me. And you know what God will say when we ask him? He'll say, bring the finest robe and put it on my child because they were dead and now they're alive. Maybe you need to experience that forgiveness today. We want to give you the opportunity to do so. So we're all going to stand together and sing. And if you need that forgiveness, today's as good a day to any to do it.